The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to Squawk Box with Karen Cho and Steve Sedgwick here in London and Jeff Cutmore in Moscow. These are your Thursday headlines. UBS delivers better than expected first quarter net profit despite steep declines at its investment bank as the CEO Sergio Motti points to improved market conditions by the end of the quarter. We're going to speak to him at 7.45 Central European time. Merger talks between Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank apparently hitting obstacles with word of a deal between the two German lenders unlikely to come now before Deutsche reports earnings tomorrow. Facebook sets aside $3 billion to cover an expected fine from the Federal Trade Commission. But shares jump in after hours trade as its first quarter revenue tops estimates. Tesla reports a big loss in the first quarter, breaking its winning streak, but predicts a return to profitability in the second half of the year. And at this hour, earnings season continues with results from Bayer, Peugeot and Wirecard. Plus, the former Nissan chairman, Carlos Ghosn, is granted bail again. And Russian President Vladimir Putin meets North Korea's Kim Jong-un in their first ever one-on-one summit. Right. A very good morning to you all. Uh, following the Credit Suisse numbers yesterday, you'll know that, uh, of course, there are many issues at the investment banks globally and the Swiss ones uh, for their part as well. Investment banking was the focus, IBCM, uh, over at Credit Suisse yesterday. Uh, today is a similar kind of story, and we already know from comments from Sergio Motti and UBS previously, uh, most recently in late March as well, that investment banking had one of its worst starts to the year in recent history as well. So that was the backdrop. The market was ready uh, for some tough trading conditions. Uh, And despite that, it looks like we have a beat uh, at the company with pre-tax profits coming in down 26%. We were ready for a lower figure, but at 1.546 billion US dollars. That is a beat compared with expectations. Uh, The CT1 ratio, always keeping a nod on capital levels, coming in at 13%. The leverage ratio at 3.8% in the first quarter. Return on CT1 Capital was 13.3%. Net new money, 22.3 billion US dollars. And again, a reiteration of that caution. Uh, Challenging market conditions improving towards the end of the first quarter and into April. But uh, as a bit of a fillip, a bit of a boost for the stock, uh, Mr. Omoti and the team saying they intend to resume share buybacks into the second quarter and will continue to execute the strategy to deliver capital return objectives, i.e. being very tough on costs. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. I was just going to do a bit of a compare and contrast because uh, the market's been looking at Credit Suisse versus UBS and effectively the the comments from Sergio Motti of UBS in recent weeks at uh, an industry conference was almost like a profit warning about what he was seeing at his company. And then we saw Credit Suisse yesterday coming out and being fairly confident about the outlook and its numbers looking uh, decent enough. Market was sort of saying, what's wrong with UBS? Why can UBS not do what Credit Suisse 
has been doing and what has Credit Suisse been doing? It's been cutting costs. Mm. And there's been a, a number of comparables about the ability for Credit Suisse, for TGMTN to strip out the uh, the costs in the business. 6% spending cuts last year versus 0.2% of UBS. If you look at these numbers, you can see that uh, Sergio Motti has gone after that cost to income uh, ratio. Now it's 77.9. It wasn't 80 prior to that. So it's tried to close the gap with Credit Suisse, which you may recall was about 76.9%. So it is starting to strip down uh, the cost levels in the face of challenging market conditions. Impossible to do that, though, in IBCM in the current environment. You have to keep the remuneration there. Otherwise, the mantra goes, you lose the talent as well. And when there's reduced client activity, uh, as, as I've crossed swords with um, uh, TGM about this previously, then your cost income ratio does go up as well. So, and I, so almost certainly at the IBCM line, you will not see uh, cuts in those cost Can income I ratios. Can I debate that with you, because doesn't, you it, welcome to try. doesn't it matter what your rivals are doing? Because, you know, the theory is, well, I'm not getting paid here. See you later. I'm going to go elsewhere. But where right. do you go in this environment? And don't forget, was it Barco's is saying uh, some, some bonus cuts this year as well? We know Deutsche is not in great position to be paying mm. out huge amounts of money. So where do you go in Europe if you want sure. to be an investment banker in, in this particular sure. climate? But base salaries are huge. They are huge for what everyone says. Compared with the, the mere mortals in the rest of the world, they are huge as well. And you've got base costs, base salaries, uh, base guarantee bonus schemes. We're all bit in shares these days for many of the, the banks as well and have to be held for a significant amount of time. But when the client level activity goes down, um, your costs go up as a relative proportion. So it's almost impossible to get those down as well. Um, what else do we want to have a look at here? They say provisions for litigation, regulatory and similar matters have come in at $2.67 billion versus two. 2.827 billion at the end of 2018 and we know litigation is still something which is uh, weighing uh, on all of this good Forbes piece by the way just came out on the 19th of April talking at their real uh, problems here as well and they were just they nailed it down to three parts as well and, and they were talking about uh, issues uh, in key drivers such as net fee and in commission income as well which is also down across the board not just in investment banking as well and also making a very good point about the uncertain macroeconomic environment as well affecting all of these investment banks. Mm, I wonder whether M&A is now going to be a feature for the banks because we've been talking all week about whether Deutsche Bank is uh, teaming up their asset management division with someone else out there and whether it's UBS or whether it's going to be an Allianz or some other player, whether that does trigger a wave of changes across the industry. I mean, we've seen it before in other industries. One company decides to consolidate or team up with a rival to achieve scale, then it's game on right across the sector. I wonder but whether that's going to be a challenge. what does it achieve apart from the cost cut? I, mean, I will just do this very quickly. What does it achieve? Because longer term, the same issues are there about underperformance about active management questions as well. We've got a guest coming on at, at 9 Central European time, and she represents, of course, the ETF industry. It's Whaley joining us as well. Uh, and, and let me just tell you that, uh, that ETF uh, flows in the first quarter were ETPs, exchange-traded products, 103 billion dollars were added to global ETPs in the first quarter. Would you believe that's a huge decrease from the fourth quarter of 2018? Yeah, I know. I know it was 161 billion in the fourth quarter of 2018, but still huge ETP inflows. And therein lies the longer term problem for those 
uh, asset managers Don't you as say well. a bit of action would be welcome in the sector, whatever that action is? If you look at the share price performance across European banks, something needs to happen in, you know, with the, the backdrop of the ECB uh, still staying very negative on the deposit rate. Self-help measures, whatever those measures are, yeah. I think are just welcome because people want to see that there is an action well, plan. Want, I think you're absolutely right. They want to see something going on as well. Well, look, don't miss the UBS CEO Sergio Motti interview on CNBC on these results coming up 7.45 CET. Talking of self-help. Well, yes, Deutsche Bank is unlikely to announce a deal to merge with Commerzbank by Friday when the German lender reports its first quarter earnings. According to the Wall Street Journal, both sides are far from a deal and have no plans to announce an intention to combine. Merger talks between the two German lenders are in their sixth week. Let's get out to Annette for more in Frankfurt. Annette, I think this is one we could have put money on because if you look at all the, the different deals on, on the side, uh, Deutsche with its wealth management division having separate conversations, whether Commerce Bank might have some rivals, it seems very difficult to get to some form of a merger deal with uh, flesh on the bones, so to speak, by Friday. Yeah, it's uh, probably impossible to have a real deal uh, by Friday, which is like tomorrow. Um, and that's also what I'm hearing here on the ground from various sources, that um, the most likely scenario what we might be getting is that they will announce that the talks will kind of enter a next stage, uh, become more serious, or worst case is they fall apart. If you look at the market, it's quite interesting. Look at the bond side of things and the bond market is really not playing that the merger is about to happen imminently because the spreads are still diverging of both banks. So the bond market treats both banks as individual banks, not as a merged entity, just as, uh, as another angle to the whole story. So where do we stand? Commerzbank uh, seems to be very eager to combine their businesses with Deutsche Bank. But I think the whole operation that's very complex, and that's what they are also seeing now. Um, kind of two days ago, I was hearing that even not all documents are ready yet. So I think there needs to be a lot more work done until they really can announce that they're planning on uh, going together. We have the AGMs coming up at the, the 23rd of May. And I think that will be the big day um, where they have to to uh, uh, yeah, kind of inform their shareholders whether they do a deal or whether they don't do a deal. And I guess we have, we probably will need some more time until we're really going to know what's going to happen with both banks. As of tomorrow, of course, Deutsche Bank is about to report um, tomorrow morning and most likely we get some sort of announcement because the head of the supervisory board, Paul Achleitner, was guiding the markets and also other um, um, executives at Deutsche Bank were guiding uh, investors that this is the day where at least we're going to know whether the talks will proceed, whether they will go ahead, get more serious, or whether they will actually walk away and go on their own or will, will do their business on a standalone basis. So I think we have to wait and see what's going to happen tomorrow. Back to you. Aneta, thank you very much for that. OK, let us move on. German insurer Allianz and French asset manager Amundi reportedly interested, both of them, in joining the race for Deutsche Bank's asset management business, DWS. This, according to Reuters, Allianz and Amundi working 
uh, with advisors on a deal for DWS, which is valued at $5.5 billion. A CNBC source has confirmed a report that UBS is already in talks with Deutsche over a DWS tie-up. All three companies declined to comment on the reports. Right. Tesla shares ended after-hours trade only slightly lower after the carmaker posted a wider-than-expected first-quarter loss. I thought they'd started making money. Oh, well, they've gone the other way now. On, on an okay. adjusted basis, the company blamed the dip on struggles to deliver its key Model 3 car to Europe and China, whilst demand slipped following the end to a tax credit for buyers in January. Tesla warned it will not return to profitability before the second half of the year. Yeah, also a lot of talk about a cash call at this company, which uh, Mr. <laughs> uh, Musk is finally admitting might have to happen. Anyway, Microsoft briefly topped $1 trillion in market value after the tech giant reported better than expected third quarter earnings per share and revenue. The firm was boosted by a rise in sales of its Windows operating system, as well as a strong performance at its flagship cloud service. But is that slowing down a bit? That's a question. Uh, CFO Amy Hood also predicted continued growth at the cloud unit in the company's fourth quarter. Facebook shares surged in after-hours trading despite the social media firm setting aside $3 billion for a potential settlement with the FTC. The social media giant beat on first-quarter revenue expectations and matched forecasts for daily active user growth. Elizabeth has been pouring through the detail. I want to get to uh, the um, profits they would have topped Wall Street forecasts if not for the money that they had to set aside for that FTC fine. And so the markets, you know, rallied about some of the fundamentals. But it does matter, doesn't it, that you've got a huge fine because regulators are basically cracking down on the privacy breaches that have happened at Facebook. And they keep on coming, these breaches. It's a really interesting trade happening here that Facebook's up about 8% in extended hours despite that three to up to $5 billion fine that they're facing from the FTC. This relates to the Cambridge Analytica scandal that we saw last year. The FTC opened this inquiry into Facebook about whether Facebook violated this consent agreement that it had reached with that US regulator in 2011. And what we're seeing is that Facebook is saying we have to start factoring these costs into our operations. Now, the reason that shares are trading higher this morning is because people are buying into essentially Mark Zuckerberg's vision that they can offset these costs with continued growth. If you look at the user numbers for Facebook, 8% growth year on year in daily active users and monthly active users. And that's the key metric that advertisers look at. And it's the key metric that many of the other um, users look at when they're trying to decide how far this can go. not as strong as the growth that you saw in Twitter and Snapchat. They grew their daily active users by 11%, albeit on a smaller base. So the growth is not quite keeping pace now, is it, when you look at the, the huge Facebook user base? That's true. And, and we are seeing in the U.S. a little bit of topping out of growth. The growth is mainly coming from the international markets. Ironically, 4 million new users here in Europe, and that's kind of back to the levels that we saw in the initial drop when the privacy regulations came into place here in Europe. But a lot of what the, the, the bullish sentiment about the user figures is coming from is just the pure size of these numbers. 2.7 billion monthly active users across Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. That's about you know, 10 to 20 times as many as so many other social media platforms. And that's where they kind um, of... We are obsessed by DAUs from. and MAUs yeah. and all that as well. And, and look, they're very good numbers. How are they making their money, though? Of course, yeah, 
um, 1.89 cents per share would $1.89 would have thrashed forecast if it hadn't been for that mm-hmm. charge, um, which was um, around about 76 cents a share, I think the charge was something like that as well. What are they actually making their money from apart from, the, I mean, is it is advertising? It's almost entirely advertising. That's right. right. It's and, and on the call, we heard a lot of focus on how there's growth in advertising, particularly coming from the stories section of um, Facebook's business, and that's mainly on Instagram. Sheryl Sandberg talking about how there's now three million advertisers using stories, and that's across all three of those platforms. Can I come back to the fines? Because the three to five billion is the assumption now that Facebook is working on around an FTC fine. That's US regulators. What about others? And some that have been listed, Vietnam has been accusing Facebook of breaching cybersecurity laws. You've got problems in Germany, and there are problems in many other countries as well. So should there be a higher estimate that investors are factoring in? I mean, this is a record fine from the FTC. The last fine that we saw from the FTC was $22.5 million for Google, and that was about five years ago. That was in 2012. GDPR, those fines could be 4% of global annual revenues. That could be in this billion dollar range. And I think that that's something that investors need to be looking at. They might say, if the U.S. is taking this that seriously, perhaps European regulators might up their game on Facebook here, too. Um, I'm going to ask one quick question. Sorry. Uh, the gallery had a conversation with me. said, I can't ask a question on Microsoft, <laughs> but I'm going to. Uh, um, uh, that, that's what I see. They give us the toys and then they can't get rid of us. Um, Satya Nadella is doing a brilliant job. Unambiguously. Um, but and, and we're always looking for cracks and changes in terms. Cloud is brilliant over, uh, it's going really, really well for them. But is there a crack here? Azure Cloud Products Division jumped 73% from the 76% in um, the first two quarters of last year. But overall, I noticed that the uh, cloud operations looking a lot slower than they were previously as well. Is there something we need to worry about there? We are completely looking at the two other players in this cloud market, and that's Google and that's Amazon, which is. <laughs> this is an, an, you know, a place that Microsoft has dominated. Azure is a product that's that enterprise cloud product. It was number one there and it has been you know, for a while. But there are an increasingly signs that com- competition is heating up and there's a lot of margins to be made in this business and all of those tech companies want a little slice of it. All right, fabulous. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, and I've got a bone to pick about delivery here later on if anyone wants to hear it. <laughs> uh, just, just the way that numbers are presented to us as journalists is quite extraordinary. Anyway, let's move on to Nokia. Yes, I'm just the reading 5G through battle. the report card. The Q1 was a weak quarter for the company. That's uh, the first line, first takeaway message. They say, though, that they expected that it would be a weak quarter. The outcome has not changed their perspective for the rest of the year, so for the full year 2019. They are confident that the issue that drove the weakness will ease over the remainder of the year, but uh, overall risks have increased slightly to continue to see positive developments. Uh, They're maintaining their guidance, though, for the full year at this stage. Uh, As the year progresses, they still expect meaningful top-line and margin improvements. 5G revenues are expected to grow sharply, particularly in the second half of the year, uh, driven by 36 commercial wins to date. So they've given us a number on how many wins they've had in 5G, which is very key. And you may recall that they've spent up on a bit of CapEx to secure some of those commercial wins. Global service profitability should improve as they uh, recover in a handful of large uh, rollout projects, they say. And uh, in terms of um, the risk, that's now being flagged up. I just want to get into some of the uh, other numbers for you. Actually, no, we're going to move on. So uh, let's uh, come back to this later on. Rajiv Suri, the CEO of Nokia, will be coming up at 9.30 CET. Ahead on the show, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un meets President Putin for their first ever summit. Find out what's at stake. 
Uh, and we've got a podcast coming up as well. So um, it's on CNBC.com and Spotify and uh, iTunes. As you can see, U.S. markets giving back a little bit of ground yesterday, breaking a seven-day win streak for the NDX, S&P and Nasdaq. All both broke a three-day win streak, but in a minor fashion. I mean, we're very close to all-time highs, aren't we? Anyway, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is meeting Russian President Vladimir Putin at a summit in Vladivostok. <coughs> Kremlin officials have confirmed that talks will focus on Pyongyang's nuclear program after negotiations between North Korea and the U.S. failed early this year. Well, who better to have talking about this uh, than Jeff in Moscow? Glorious-looking Moscow. Look, Jeff, this is much uh, a thorn in the side of Mr. Pompeo uh, and uh, Mr. Trump as well, because from Syria uh, to Caracas, and now, of course, with Pyongyang as well, the Russians are sticking their oar in and very successfully in some ways getting themselves on the table. No, absolutely, Steve. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember that uh, Russia's involvement in North Korea goes all the way back to the founding of the regime in the northern half of the Korean peninsula. And of course, the Russians were very involved in denuclearization talks uh, back in the noughties. Uh, right up to 2008, the six-party talks involved Russia. And subsequently, over the years, the uh, uh, the stalemate has not produced any significant breakthroughs and there's been some shift, obviously, as we know, in the diplomatic relationships. Uh, North Korea fell out of love in many ways with Russia, as did Russia after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. So here we are. Let's, let's fast forward to where we are now. After that summit in Vietnam broke down, difficult for us to know where the next stage of these denuclearization talks were going to go with the United States. And we still don't have a clear map for that. But what we have seen here is the Russians putting their stake on the table and suggesting here is an opportunity for President Putin to once again get involved in these negotiations. Uh, as the two leaders went into their summit meeting, which the Kremlin expects to last about four hours, uh, there were a number of pleasantries exchanged. The Russian president said he hoped for improvements on trade. He hoped for some form of uh, settlement uh, progress between the US and the, uh, the North Korean government. And of course, uh, he also expressed his hope that we would see some movement around the larger denuclearization issue for the Asia region. For his part, um, Kim Jong-un expressed his uh, pleasure that uh, President Putin had won his last election and also said, he welcomed uh, Russia's involvement in discussions about the direction of these nuclear discussions. Let me send it back to you guys. Jeff, I did have questions for you, but I understand there's a couple of communication issues as well. But yeah, very interesting here in the West that we are looking, of course, at Russia sticking his way. But I wonder what the Chinese think about that, because we look in the West, OK, communist socialist nations, uh, they must be working in cahoots. But I'd imagine the Chinese see this very much as their patch, given the fact there's a 1500 kilometre border between, of course, North Korea and China. Now, we have got an opportunity to have a very quick word about Nokia as well. You had a couple more very important points you wanted to raise. Yeah, I just want to come 
come back to the numbers, I, I think they're a little bit disappointing today. Investors right. have been guided that by 2020, the company might actually turn a profit. And this might have been the first signal on these numbers that they're on course for that. If you consider the EBIT that the market was anticipating, they thought there'd be a profit at 305 million. But uh, instead, we've had a, an EBIT loss of 59 million, the uh, Q1 share loss of 0.08 euros. So the market, I think, will be a little bit disappointed with the profitability targets after what the company diagnoses as a weak quarter that should improve so, for the rest of the quick year. Quick question for you. You're the expert here. Mm. And you, you, you know this subject inside out. Every time there was a new iPhone launch, whether it's the four waiting for the five or the five waiting for the six, you saw sales fall off waiting for the next one. And then mm. you saw this big launch of the next one. With this, these companies, whether it's Huawei, Ericsson, and in this case, Nokia as well, is there a bit of, this is the full storm, we're waiting for the real battle to come because 4G spending goes off, waiting for the 5G spending to really ramp up. I wouldn't put it that way. I think there's been other disruptive factors at play here, which yep. is uh, the whole furor over whether Huawei will be allowed to play in 5G which has meant people had to rake back over 4G and say, do we need to replace some of that equipment? So a CapEx has to go backward looking to 4G as well as anticipating 5G spending. So the operators are kind of, you know, in, in this very uncertain environment saying, how much are we going to allocate in this direction and this sure. direction? And who are we going to spend it with? Because are we allowed to spend with Huawei, which were the cheaper uh, providers in the room? Now is it going to be with I the Nokia and Ericsson? the UK government oscillation yesterday. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.